Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2.5% of the most popular podcasts globally, and it's all because of my incredible guests, and I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game and who are here to absolutely help you get to where you want to be in life and business. These are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with you the essence of peak performance. And today, we get to delve into the answer to that fundamental question that all entrepreneurs face. What do I do on Monday morning at 8 o'clock to grow my business? I don't know about you. I ask that every morning and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every day. Entrepreneurs, business leaders, CEOs, and general managers all face that challenge, how to grow their business faster and outpace their competition. And despite many attempts, there has not been a consistent methodology on which they can rely to generate to real and sustainable revenue growth. So my guest today is best-selling author of Aligning the Dots, The New Paradigm to Grow Any Business, and he's the host of the Alignment Zone television series. He's a speaker, a growth expert, a venture capitalist, CEO, entrepreneur, and board members. Philip Busso. <laughs> I just asked him how to pronounce this. Let me do it one more time. Philip Busso. Philip, is that right? That was Tell perfect. Me. That was okay. perfect. I mean, I and I was so careful not to butcher your name, and I did it anyway. But here you are, and I'm sorry. I'm so glad to hear you. I have your book, and I'm excited about it because it's it's an easy to read book. But nothing about what you're saying is easy or simple, but it matters. It's a new approach, and you're here to tell us why it matters to us. So welcome. Thank you, Denise. It's a pleasure to be on your show. And thank you for sending the book for me. I I read it over the weekend. I've got sticky notes all over it. I was fascinated by how easy it is to read. And then I said, oh, I can do that. Uh Uh-oh. I've got to learn to do that. So tell, tell people a bit about yourself before I start asking questions. Yes, thank you again. So um, I am an entrepreneur at heart. Um, I always like to start things. And I've always been fascinated by the process to transform an idea into, into a real business. That, that's something that has always uh, intrigued me. And, and how do you do this? Um, I have, you know, I'm from Europe. I'm from France. Uh, but I have been in Silicon Valley for 31 years uh, and I actually studied a Unix software company uh, when I moved here and uh, sold it to our largest customer who was complaining that we were selling our product to his competitors. And I said, look, you know, there is only one way is you buy us and we're not for sale. And that's how we got acquired. Um, and then I went into Hachette. I worked for Hachette, one of the largest publishing companies in the world, to help them get into uh, the world of electronic publishing. Hachette is a, is a very traditional paper print publishing uh, company. And my job was to help them understand and transition from atoms to bits. 
And so I did that for a number of years and I negotiated a bunch of deals. I was running a business development for them. And uh, I, I worked out a deal with Apple and the guy at Apple liked me and he asked me to join and I joined Apple to start uh, what's called the Apple Studio, which was a group focused on the content developer community as opposed to the application developer community. Um, and then at Apple, uh, I came up with this crazy idea that we should sell direct over the internet. And I studied the online store, uh, grew it from zero to $350 million, which today represents about $25 billion for the company. Um, and then I left Apple and then by accident, I became a venture capitalist. So I joined a seed and early stage VC firm here in Silicon Valley, um, invested money and was successful because of a couple of home runs. Um, and then I started to, was interested in, in management consulting. So I joined another firm that was focused on helping company optimize their distribution channel, their distribution partnerships. Um, so we had about 220 clients like Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, SAP, very large companies. Um, and then I studied Blue Dots back in 2014 with the focus on helping companies grow faster. And that's what I've been doing since 2014. And you worked under Steve Jobs, didn't you? Yes, I mean, yes. You, you don't see my picture, but I don't have a lot of hair, and that's because I work for Steve. Um, I spent I spent about, about a year working directly for Steve, um, and it was a fascinating experience for me. I, I learned a lot, um, and um, yeah, it was really interesting. I would imagine. I've read a lot about him, and, you know, he, I gather, was a true workaholic, and if you weren't, you couldn't be around him, I don't think. That's correct. Um, I actually, and, and he was working, I mean, he, he came back in 97, 98. Apple was in, a, in, in really bad shape. Um, and he was working every day, very long hours. Um, he really wanted to turn the company around. And um, he was dedicated to it. Um, yeah, he was working really hard weekends every day. Um, and to the point that one day, you know, my wife came to me, we were newlywed, um, didn't have kids at the time. And she sat me down. She said, honey, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, I've done, I'm in trouble. What did I do? And she looked at me, uh, and she said, look, you have a choice to make you either stay married with me or you marry Steve, but it's like, I'm not going to go on like this. And uh, I looked back at her and I said, you're absolutely right. And a week later, I decided to leave Apple. Well, good for you. And we've been married for 28 years now. See, your family is so important. But that's a terrific story about Steve Jobs. I mean, you know, either like him or, or don't like him. I happen to admire his work ethic a lot. Would mm -hmm. I be able to be around him? Oh, heck no. Nope. Look, I work hard. I work fast and furious. But... I don't want to be forced into it. And I suspect a lot of people were forced into it. Yeah. I mean, Steve, you know, I always think of Steve as, as Napoleon, who was a, a brilliant genius on one side. And on the other side, Napoleon was a horrible despot. I mean, he would put people in jail and kill people who disagreed with him. Now, of course, Steve was, wasn't that bad, but there was, there was a, a facet of Steve that was, you know, extraordinarily brilliant that I have never seen any, anywhere else. And then there was another facet, which was, you know, the person who was not easy to work with, uh, who was tough uh, in, in a way that wasn't justified, at least in my opinion, um, and kind of a lack of sensitivity. 
And um, and so, you know, when I was when I'm thinking of Steve, I was thinking, you know, which Steve I'm going to meet today, and and how is he today? And it's kind of those two facets that are really hard to reconcile, but I think is the best description I found of of, of Steve. So that's fascinating, and I'm inclined to believe that because I've read a lot about him, and mm-hmm. you know I've watched a lot of different stories about him, and thought, who, and and you brought it up, who in history does he remind me of? And I hadn't quite made it to Napoleon, but that's mm-hmm. perfect, and that that absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Oh, great story. So what happened? I mean, you've got a lot to share, and I really do want to get to the book. What happened after you quit? Where did you go from there? Well, I didn't know where to go, so I uh, I had no plans. I, you know, but again, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, so I was thinking, you know, I started a business. I have some ideas, and I started a software company or something. Um, when I was at Apple, I was on the, the board of the Annenberg Cinematographic School because Apple was very uh, keen on making sure that all the digital effects in Hollywood were made on a Mac and not on a PC. And, and that's why, uh, that as part of my Apple Studio responsibility, I was on that board. And one of the board, member, uh, one of the board members was a, a VC guy, a venture capitalist guy, and he said, why don't you come and work you know, with us? And I told him that the idea of writing a check uh, to help an entrepreneur wasn't really appealing. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build. And he said, well, we're doing a little bit more than just writing a check. We really help those portfolio companies. Why don't you come and, and give it a try? So I joined. Um, and, um, and that's how I became a venture capitalist. I didn't get up in the morning. That wasn't my plan. And I uh, really enjoyed doing it, working with seed and early stage companies, working with those entrepreneurs wanted to change the world and trying to help them the best way the best we can so that they are, they can become successful you know i've always said that nature abhors a vacuum when mm-hmm. something goes away something else takes its place yeah, and it's up to you to allow it or disallow it mm-hmm. yeah that's very true yeah terrific listen we're you're breaking up just a little bit uh then it cleared up so i'm hoping that Maybe you got closer to the the microphone, I don't know, but if it gets too bad, I'll let you know. We may have to stop this and start over again on another date, but let's hope it stays clear. So the book, let's let's talk about your book, Aligning the Dots, A New Paradigm to Grow Any Business. Listen, we are all, you know, especially after COVID, and it's small businesses, it's big businesses, it's giant businesses. We're all trying to reach our clients, our consumers, our customers, our audience, if you will. And I think there's a lot of mistakes that are happening. And one of the things, and I'll I'll get you to share with us some business ideas and tips and case studies, but I watched a video that you did on your website, and you were talking about common tactics that very rarely work. I've tried some of them, so I agree with you. So let's talk about that a bit. Yeah, so first of all, the goal is to is to grow the business. And when I talk about growth, I'm talking about the top line, the revenue. It's like, how do you grow your business? And, and why is growth so important? Because if you are not growing faster than your market, then your competition is, and, and mathematically, they are taking market share away from you. So you're losing market share. And that's, that puts you on a path to become irrelevant as a business. So you have to grow. 
And in fact, I would argue that growing faster than your market is the only way to create real and sustainable shareholder value and, and value for your business. So then the question so, is, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, so how do you do that? And I think you're about right. to tell me. Right. So that, that's, that's the next part. Then the question is, what do I do to grow faster? Um, and it's a deceptively simple question, but really hard to answer. It's a little bit like saying, what do I do to be a good parent on Monday morning at 8 o'clock? It's like you don't even, even know where to start. So I, I re, I had a, back in 2014, I had an epiphany. I realized that the, the way to grow your business as fast as possible within your market. So I'm always comparing the growth rate of the business to the growth rate of the market that the business is in. The only way to do that is to create and maintain a perfect alignment between the business and its target market. So to optimize the growth rate, to grow as fast as you can, you have to perfectly align your business with your market. And, and what creates slowdown in the revenue is misalignment. There, you, there's misalignment somewhere between your business and your target market. And then the next question is, okay, well, what does that really mean to be aligned with my target market? And the definition of alignment is that you have to make sure that your business is aligned along four universal axes of alignment. And I, I insist that they are absolutely universal. So they apply to any business. So I can take a cafe on the left bank in Paris. I can take a startup here in Silicon Valley. I can take a mid-sized company in Miami or a Fortune 500 company headquartered in Manhattan. It applies the same way. And let me quickly describe what those four axes of alignment are. Oh, please. The first one is that the pain that the customer has and the claim that the business makes to address that pain have to be aligned. So, Denise, if you come to me and you say, I have a headache and I show you a stomachache pill, well, clearly your pain is not aligned with my claim and you will never buy my pill and you shouldn't. So that's the first axis of alignment. The pain and the claim have to be aligned. The second one is the message, which is the expression of the claim. How do you communicate your claim? And the perception, which is the understanding of that claim, have to be aligned. So to continue on my analogy with the pill, imagine that I have the right pill for your headache, and I describe it to you in Korean. I'm assuming you don't speak Korean. You will, even though it's the perfect pill for your headache, you will not buy it because you're not understanding what I'm talking about. You're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? That's the second axis. The third one is the way your customers want to acquire your product or your service, the way they want to purchase, and the way you're selling in the marketplace have to be aligned. So if I say, Denise, you can get my pill, but you have to come here in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley where I am, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm in Lafayette here. Uh, why do I have to come here? Why can I just walk to the pharmacy next to where I live? That's the third axis. And then the fourth axis is my favorite one called I stole it out of the Apple playbook. So one of the lessons I learned working for Steve Jobs is that I came to the realization that there is one and only one business on this entire planet. So we are all in the same unique business. There are no two or three or million businesses. There is only one. And that unique business is the manufacturing and delivery of delight. Let me say that again because this is so profound. 
The unique business there is on this planet is to manufacture and deliver the light. And so imagine I give you the pill, you buy it, and then you swallow it, and after a while you have a rush on your skin, your headache is persisting, and you don't feel better. Well, obviously, that's not what you expected. I didn't meet your expectation. So the fourth axis of alignment is the alignment between the expected delight and the delivery, what the company delivers. So the four axis of alignment apply to any business, regardless of what the business does. And they are the following, the pain of the customer and the claim the business makes have to be aligned, the perception of the customer and the message, which is the expression of the claim, have to be aligned, the way customers want to buy and the way the business sells have to be aligned. And finally, the expected delight of the customer and what the company delivers to that customer have to be aligned. And if you perfectly align your business along those four universal axes, you will achieve the maximum growth rates possible within your target market. You know, I remember, this is some years ago, this was big talk probably 10 years ago, that people would say, well, I don't want to switch from, you know, company A to company D. I don't care if the price is considerably cheaper. I really like what they bring to me, how they deliver it, and how they take care of me. Mm -hmm. And I just considered that to be a loyalty factor, which sounds to me kind of like what you're speaking of here as well. You have to create that loyalty. Or am I missing something? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And the loyalty will come from the fact that your customers are getting what they expect, the delight they deliver to them. Well, and that makes sense. But these days, I mean, I, I was in the grocery store. I had to drop my car off at the to get her looked at. I cried. It's a Range Rover. It's not going to be cheap. You know, I, I wept a little bit when I left her there. But my mm-hmm. friend picked me up, and we went grocery shopping and ran some errands. And I have to tell you, right now, everything is so darned expensive that loyalty may not do the job. I have mm-hmm. not since I was a kid where a young adult in the grocery store picked something up and went, oh, my God, and put it back down. And it seemed like everything I picked up, I would look at it, look at the price, and go, you know, I really don't need this right now. What is going yes, to happen yes. with with the, the insane, the insanity that is happening with our money supply right now? Well, I, so first of all, you're making a good point, which is pricing. Pricing. Pricing in our approach and in my book is part of the claim. So a claim doesn't exist without pricing. So I'll give you a quick example. Let's say I say you can fly from New York to Paris in 30 minutes instead of, you know, the four or five hours it takes. Well, if I just say that and I said, are you interested? Obviously, you're going to say yes. If I said, well, you have to pay $100,000 for that flight, then suddenly, you know, your pain is not as painful. You're going to say, well, I'm going to buy, you know, the $500 or $300 ticket. Um, But if I say you're going to pay, you know, 15% more than the Air France flight, then suddenly you're going to say 15% 30 minutes instead of hours. Of course, it's a good deal. I want to do it. So as pricing is going up, as we see now, then suddenly the alignment between the claim and the pain doesn't sustain because it's like, yes, I'd love to have, you know, that product and eat that particular fish, for example, but the price becomes so crazy that I'm not going to buy it. So you, you, the pricing increase is introducing a misalignment that you didn't have before, and that's why you buy less. 
So I think that's, that's what's happening. And as people decide to consume less because pricing are increasing so much, then the demand will go down. The supply should stay the same, maybe get even better with some supply chain issue being resolved. And then suddenly you're going to see price contracting again and price being realigned. So we're in a high inflation rate right now. But I think, you know, as people are more careful in consuming because of the high price, the demand will go lower and price will stabilize. So that's typically what has happened in the past. And I believe the same will happen you know, now. See, I caught myself thinking along those lines yesterday because you know, in my favorite grocery store, it's a local grocery store, everything in there on half of the grocery store is fresh. It's locally sourced fish, mm-hmm. alligator, whatever you want to eat. Nice. But the shelves were a bit bare. Yeah. And yeah. finding just a head of lettuce was a trick. I had to actually ask for iceberg lettuce to be brought from the back. It just things are changing. But we've seen this before. We saw it in the 70s. You know, we've seen this before. So, you know, sometimes it's, you know, maybe I don't need that product or maybe I don't need that course at this time. But you can always revisit it later. What I'm trying to say is don't panic. Don't spend Mm -hmm. as much money on silly stuff that you normally would. But I don't think it's time to panic yet. Yeah, and, and things will get back. I mean, I know, you know, the market is very low right now. It's contracting almost every day and people are very tempted to sell. And that's a big mistake unless they really need the money. Um, because, you know, this is, we've seen corrections and bear markets many, many times since, you know, the 50s or the 60s. Things will get better and people kind of forget and, and people were used to the market going up forever. And that's not sustainable and that's not happening. And so it's like, just don't look at the stock market for a month or two. Just just ignore it and then and then go back to it. And things will things will go back to a more normal state. We'll, we'll correct and we'll be back to you know good businesses and good growth. So I, I totally agree. With I you. think so. Yeah, I agree with you. This no, nothing is permanent, and people make the mistake of saying, "Oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to lose my house." Yeah, you're not. Just yeah. calm down. <laughs> Don't spend money you don't have is my best yeah. advice. So yeah. let's go, go back to the book. The first thing you ask is why you should read this book. That's the first thing you tell us when you open it. So why should we read this book? Well, uh, that's, that's a really good question. There are about 11,000 business books that are published every year. And, and the question, and it's a very fair question, is as a reader, why should I take some of my most precious commodity, which is my time? and read this book. Um, The reason is that this is a very new way of thinking about how to solve the problem and the challenge of growth, which is a very vexing and challenging uh, thing that everybody has to face. Um, And if you want to think differently, if you want to have a data-driven scientific approach to solving that question, then that's the book to read. And to my knowledge, there is no other books that are giving that blueprint, that, that clear way of thinking and, and achieving that growth. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, which is like the traditional way of growth are simply not working. And they are not working because they are based on emotion rather than data. It's not, it's not rational. There is no measurement, there is no number, there is no data, and that's why it doesn't work. So I believe that this book gives a very unique perspective on, on how to grow faster 
in a way that's very achievable and very clear. And thank you for that. I agree with you. So in, I'm looking at some of your case studies. You've got a bunch of them in here, and they're terrific. Crate and barrel. You said mm-hmm. you had to grow while, or they had to grow while preserving its DNA. What does that mean? So I talked about the four axes of alignment between the market and the business. Those are what I call the four external axes of alignment. Uh, truth to be told, if you want to grow faster, it's not four axes, it's five axes. The fifth axis is the internal alignment. If your team is not internally aligned to execute the four external alignments, then your business will not grow. You will fail at, at you know, achieving the challenge of growth. Um, Crate and Barrel had a very strong culture um, when the company was founded by the husband and wife from the beginning, and that culture really enabled them enabled them to grow fast. And then they kind of lost the culture along the way, and they realized that if they wanted to recapture the growth, they had to go back to the basic fundamentals of that culture, that DNA, and and re- really realign the internal team along that along those values. And that's what they did. And then successfully, they were starting to grow again. And there have been a remarkable success story since the beginning because of that. You know, I'm thinking as you're talking, as you're speaking, and you mentioned internal alignment, and boy, that got me scribbling. There, I hate to even bring this up because I hate the concept of cancel policy, you know, cancel culture, woke companies that are coming up and honestly just insulting half of the country mm-hmm. there's no internal alignment there I'd, I'd venture to say well that's absolutely true and and so why did we and how did we get there i think it's because we allowed some breaking of the rules of respect and trust and trust is really the fuel of, of business transaction if there is no trust there is no transaction, there is no growth, there is no business. And it's really important to keep that in mind. When you say to a prospect, uh, if you buy my product, this is what my product will do for you, that has to be true. If you say my product will ship on Friday, it has to ship on Friday. If you say my product is $99, it has to be $99, no hidden costs. So Trust is really, really important to success. You cannot success if you don't have the trust of your prospects and customers and and employees and shareholders and board members. Um, And I think we've lost that. We don't trust each other enough in this country. That's created the divide. We don't trust the fact. We don't believe in facts anymore and science. And that's a dangerous path, in my opinion, to create those structures and those divides. And, and we cannot build if we're not aligned altogether. There's just too much to do. I agree with you. And I'm thinking of Disney in particular. They're in deep trouble. They may not die anytime soon, but I don't know that they'll ever be what they were. Yeah. And there are, there are other companies, and frankly, I look at what they're up to, and I don't want anything to do with them. And these are companies that I've been around, you know, products, brands that I've been around all of my life. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at them and going, what happened? What happened yeah. to you? Yeah, I mean, that's very true. And they think because they have a huge brand uh, equity 
they think they can get away with all kinds of things. And the answer is that they can't, not anymore. And, and people are very careful into what they do, how they do things, how they treat people, how they treat their customers, their employees, their partners. Um, and, and again, it's back to trust, and that really matters. It really does. And I can think of many other companies. I'm not going to bring them up here, but I'm watching them slide and thinking, well, you earned that. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the stuff that you've been pulling, you kind of earned that. So let's talk about a good pricing alignment because you've mentioned that a couple of times. Yeah, so pricing yeah, so is, is really critical and it's, it's an important part of the claim. Again, a claim cannot exist, doesn't exist without pricing. <laughs> pricing is really an interesting... I didn't mean to cough all over you. I thought I was muted and I just lost it. I apologize for that. <laughs> no worries. Um, Pricing is an interesting question. It's probably one of the most overlooked alignment that we see at Blue Dots, the firm I'm, I'm working with. Um, I asked people, I said, well, how did you come up with your pricing? And they said, well, you know, when, when Jack and I studied the firm, the company, you know, five years ago, we came up with this pricing because that's what our competition was charging at the time. And I asked them, I said, well, do you think your pricing is optimized? And it's quite interesting, 74% of the CEOs we talk to do not believe that their pricing is optimized. And so what is an optimized pricing look like? Well, it's a pricing where you enable the transaction, people think it's fair, but you also want to slightly uh, price so that the expectation is met a little bit more at a little bit higher level than what they really expect. So if you expect, you know, something to be a five on a scale of, you know, five to uh, one to ten, then you should price so that they really expect a four and then they get a five, or you price at a five and then they get a six. So you have to price that the expectation is not only met but slightly overmet, if you will, but not too much because if you're delivering a lot more delight than they expect, then you're leaving money on the table. You're underpricing. And the tricky part of the pricing optimization equation is that if you change your price, so let's say you increase your price by X percent, then you're going to have churn. Some people will say, you know, this is too much for me. I'm not buying anymore. But at the same time, you have to look at the volume of people that will actually buy at that price. So it's the product of the pricing by the volume. So if you uh, decrease your price, then maybe you're going to increase your volume because now a lot more people buy and they would not have bought with the previous pricing. So it's really tricky because there's always churn if you increase. If you decrease, you think you leave money on the table, but you have to pick it up for the new logos or the new business that you will acquire with that lower pricing. And it's a really tricky thing to do, and, and I think it takes a lot of science and a lot of art to be able to optimize your pricing. But most business don't really think about it in those terms. You know, there's a reason that old-fashioned term baker's dozen came into being. Mm-hmm. We always expect yeah. what we bought, but we should expect it to be just a tad bit better. And so we can say, oh, thank you. I like that. And that's where loyalty comes from. Yeah, and I mean, but you can't just say, okay, you're going to get this, 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 and this, and that's it. Thank you. That doesn't work anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. There has to be something a little bit of a more 
that makes people that surprises people in a good way and then they kind of start to tell their friends and then that's how you start the growth you know the growth engine exactly that's how you get referrals that's how people recommend you yeah. I've always done my business that way and you tell the audience I'm losing my voice I shared this with Philippe in the green room and I didn't mean to cough all over you and I hope I don't do it again but I found raspy and I'm coughing so just bear with us and I also told Philippe you have to do all the best so that's what's happening okay. I'm asking questions but you know I'm asking them from the book because the book to me is fascinating I've got I don't like to, you know, write yellow stuff all over books. I don't like to make messes, but I've got sticky notes all over this book. And some of the things, and I really like this. This is one of my yellow sticky notes. So we talked about precise segmentation a bit, I think. But one of the sentences that really grabbed me is, tell me in one sentence, why should I buy your product? That's tricky for a lot of people. It's tricky for me. Because we have so much to share. We want to give it all away, but we can't. So let's talk about that because I think that's an important thing that we all need to know. We need just one sentence that needs to be simple. It needs to be Homer Simpson simple these days because we only have a few seconds to grab attention. So what kind of advice can you give us there? Yeah, so I, you know, I, as a venture capitalist, I, I met, you know, hundreds and hundreds of CEOs and, and entrepreneurs. Um, and I used to ask them, you know, what do you do? And they passionately start a, a huge monologue of what they are doing. It's like, well, we're building this amazing product that does X, Y, and Z, and, and this is how we do it, and we have patents, and it's, it's very tricky and all that. And then one day I realized that people are very good at describing what they do. They, they know what they do. Um, and so I completely changed and I said, you know, this is a cocktail party. I don't want to spend half an hour listening to what they do. So I, I completely changed my question. And instead of asking, what are you doing? I, I come up to the CEO and I said, look, I just have a simple question. Can you tell me in one sentence why somebody should buy your product? And, and notice that I don't even know what the company does, so I don't know what the product does. And I realized, and I was surprised, that the majority of CEOs were not able to answer that very simple question. They were not able to articulate why somebody should buy that product. And to me, that's a major problem because it shows that they cannot articulate the claim, that claim in one sentence, that they, don't, they cannot articulate the pain in one sentence, which is really the fundamental reason why people should buy their product. Um, and I was shocked. I was really shocked. And, and I would encourage you to do the same if you meet an entrepreneur or if you're an entrepreneur yourself listening to this. Ask yourself, you know, what is the sentence? Why should somebody buy my product or my service? Um, and it's a fundamental question. Um, and the other thing is you can ask the same question within the team, within an, an organization, within the company. And let's say there is, you know, 12 people on the management team you go to each of them separately and you ask this exact same question. Tell me in one sentence why somebody should buy our product. And if you have 12 exactly the same answers, then you know there's a good internal alignment. People, everybody understands the reason, the fundamental reason why your prospect should buy the product. Now, if you ask 12 people and you got 17 answers, because some may have different, more than one answer, then you know there's a fundamental misalignment internal misalignment and there is no way that that team and that the company will be able to grow fast because they cannot even answer that fundamental question so 
it, it, it's a, and it's not a provocative question. I think, I think it's a fair and, and decent question, and I think everybody should be able to answer it in one sentence. And you'll be amazed that most people don't know how to do that. It took, listen, and I love that you said this because as a web developer, I, I must have known that this was an important question because they'll start telling me what it is that they think they need on their website and for their social media, and I'll stop them and say, what is it that you, you're delivering? What is it that you're actually doing? It's completely different from what they thought they were doing or what they thought that they needed to offer to an audience or, you know, whether it's e-commerce or whatever it was. And I always ask that question. Let's keep it very simple. What is it that you actually deliver? And they, and you're right. They have to go, uh, well, we do insurance. No, 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 no. You know, are you, you know, let's say you're in agriculture, you're in the agribusiness. Are you helping your clients keep their farm safe? Well, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, there we go. That's a start. And I have to really work into what it is that they think they're offering because they know they know their processes they know what happens in their offices but they don't really i don't think i don't believe understand what they're delivering they're just too entrenched in it yeah and and i think there is that that brings a really important point um which is that most businesses don't fundamentally understand the way their customers or their prospects are thinking and they 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 don't ask them they are too afraid of the answer and i think it's very hard to be objective like if i ask you what do you think about my baby well there's no way you're gonna say my baby you know is ugly or whatever it is Um, and i encourage companies management teams to hire outside people to ask those questions um, to get to what I call the market truth. I want to know what the market really thinks about us as as a company and about our product. So for example, when we do that all the time, we've done thousands of those one-on-one phone interviews where we ask a prospect. My favorite interviews is when I talk to a prospect who decided not to buy. So I call the person and say, hey Jack, this is Philippe. I work with Blue Dots, and we got hired by this company. And I just have, and I'm not trying to sell you anything. So I, I, you decided not to buy. You, may, I know you made the right decision. You're a smart guy. You know, I'm not trying to dissuade you, and I'm not trying to make you feel like you should have bought this product. I don't really care. I don't work for the company. But I just have one simple question: is tell me why you didn't buy. And Many companies we work with fail to really understand the market truth, really understand the fundamental reasons people don't buy. And of course, the sales guys always have a story. They put that in Salesforce or whatever the CRM system is, and they just type and they say, well, you know, they don't have the budget. Well, it turns out we call them and the guy said, well, we didn't buy because they are too expensive, or we didn't buy because we didn't like the sales guys, or we didn't buy because the product didn't have that particular feature. But understanding at the fundamental level the reasons why people buy or don't buy is really really critical and and if you don't do that then you will have a myopic view of the market you will have your own stories and justifications in your head but they are not the truth and because of that you're going to make the wrong decisions and you're not and you're going to fail to execute your growth because you don't fundamentally understand what's going on really in the head of those prospects and customers. 
I understand. One of the things that we hear a lot about in any business is customer service and customer experience. And I'll tell you right now, I will take customer experience over customer service any day of the week. Because mm-hmm. if my customer experience was rotten, I don't care what you're trying to do to fix it, I'm gone. Yeah, and, and, and again, I'm amazed at the number of, I mean, I, I buy a lot of product services like everybody, and I'm so surprised that businesses never reach out to me um, trying to understand how I feel about that product. So one of the things we do, and I, I, talked, I talked about this in the book, is we tell CEOs to call two of their customers once a week, and we actually randomly select the customers. So we don't want the CEO to spend the time. I mean, CEOs are extremely busy. We don't want them to spend the time to select. So we said, okay, you know, next week you're going to you're gonna call Jack from that company, and you're going to call um, you know, uh, Isabella from that other company. And the call goes like this. The CEO calls and says, hey, I'm the CEO of company X. I know that you're using our product. You've been using our product for two and a half years. I'm very grateful for that. Um, I just have one simple question, which is, is there anything we could do differently to make your life better? And then the CEO pauses, and we tell the CEO, you need to grab the response. You need to write it down as they tell you. And you will learn after a few weeks um, after a year, you have spoken to 100, uh, over 100 uh, customers out of the blues, and you will start to see a picture. They will tell you what they truly think. And that customer will be so grateful that you, the CEO, took the time to talk to them to just try to understand how they feel about your product and what you can do better. And I am not talking about calling somebody who has been on a customer support line and who's been struggling and you call them after, that's a customer who is struggling. I'm talking about calling a customer when they don't expect it and when they don't even know about you. So, you know, I've been using American Airlines many, many times in my life, like a lot of people. I've never had a call from the CEO who says, hey, Philip, I know you've been flying X you know, number of miles on, on, on American Airlines over the past few years. What do you think of American Airlines? What can we do better for you? And that only takes 10, 15 minutes a call. So it's like 30 minutes every week. And I tell the CEO the ROI, the return of investment of that call is tremendous. And it's amazing to me that very few CEOs actually do that. It seems to me that that is a brilliant suggestion because, listen, as business owners, as entrepreneurs, as CEOs, whatever it is that we are, wherever we are in our journey, we tend to get a little bit isolated. We get busy. You know, we have people who are doing things for us. They're doing, you know, they're taking care of the stats. They're taking care of a lot of different things. And we actually do get quite isolated. So I think that is a brilliant suggestion. I would love, like, I hate AT&T. Hate them, hate them, hate them. I would love for them to call me and ask me why I want to leave their company. I can't at this moment because they're the only thing that's around here that's affordable, kind of. But Mm -hmm. I don't like them. I do not like Mm AT&T. They need to talk with people like us, and we can tell them what they're doing wrong. Yeah, and why and, and, we would rather go somewhere else. But that's true. That's true for small businesses as well. I mean, I go to a dentist. Exactly. I, I love the dentist. The dentist has never say after a consultation or just call me during the week and say, "Hey, I just want to ask you, you know, how are we doing? Is there anything we can do better?" 
I go to cafes all the time and I've never heard of the owner of the cafe taking me aside, you know, after and coming to the table and say, hey, you know, I, I own this place. I see you on a regular basis. I want to ask you, what can we do? What, is there anything we could do to make your experience better? Um, you go to a bookstore, you go to a grocery store, I mean, anything. And so, again, I, I want to insist that the book and this, this notion of alignment applies to any businesses, regardless of their size. It doesn't matter if you only have three customers or if you are AT&T or Bank of America. It, it's the same principles. You know, it's these days you get excited. I get excited when I walk into my local Dollar Tree and they stop what they're doing to say hello. Yeah. <gasps> they notice yeah. me. Oh, my goodness. How sad is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and by the way, you can reverse that. You go to the cashier and you tell the person, say, hey, how are you doing today? And they're like surprised. And you. Yep. So it, it goes both ways. I do it on my way through the door. Yeah, that's yeah. just, I live in the South. That's the polite thing to do. So I am in, I'm still in your book. I love this book. One of the, the questions, it's not a question, it's a chapter title, The Art of ra- Asking the Right Questions, and we're still in that kind of topic. There is an art to it, isn't there? I mean, you have to, in my my way of thinking, you have to listen more than you have to ask. And listening is a skill that a lot of people just, they don't have time. They don't think they need to. I don't know what's going on there, but how do you ask the, the right questions? Well, I mean, first of all, you don't want to lead the witness. So you want to ask a fair, open-ended question. You don't want to say between A and B, what do you like? Because they may like C better and C is not part of A or B. So I like open-ended questions. Um, Larry King um, for many, many years, people ask, used to ask him, so what's the best question you ask? And he said, I only ask, my favorite question is when I say why. And, and you can almost that, ask that question about anything. The guy is saying something on a monologue and you can just stop and say why, and then you just pause there. Um, so I think it has to be an open-ended question. The other thing is you have to be, um, it has to be without integrity. In other words, if you ask a question, you also need to listen to the answer very carefully. It's unfair and it's a waste of everybody's time to ask a question where you don't really care about the answer because either you don't want to hear it because it's going to hurt your feelings or you you don't really care what they say because you're not going to change anything. Um, I think there's two types of salespeople. Um, there is what I call the, the crocodiles and then the elephants. And the crocodiles have a big mouth and small ears. And then the elephants have big ears and small mouths. And I always say you want to be an elephant. You need to ask you know, a few questions. And in a sales call, you, you should spend 10, 15% of your time asking the question and the rest should be the answer. And if that doesn't happen, then you're not selling because you're not listening. You're not, you don't have empathy. You're not trying to understand the point of view of the prospects. You don't want to hear about what they really care about because you're afraid that it's not what you're doing. And, um, and so that's what, that's, what I, that's what I talk about when I talk about the art of asking the right question is, is listening, asking a true and, and important question to you where you really care about the answer and be prepared to hear any answer that that person will share with you and, and respect that time for even uh, answering the question and taking the time to talk to you. And I would take that a step further because a lot of times when we're listening to somebody you know, we all have our internal bias. We all have our knee-jerk reactions. It's like, oh, 
I didn't expect to hear that. Oh, that hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. Sit with it and then go back and listen to it if you recorded it or if you wrote it. And I think you'll find more often than not that your first impressions were not correct. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And, and I, I think that's why you need to listen and really understand how, you know, what is the person saying exactly? And, and even sometimes ask questions. Well, I, I or repeat. It's like, I hear you say X, Y, and Z. Am I correct? Did I, am I missing something? Um, and, and people will see that you're truly listening to them and they will have a high level of respect for that. Thank you for that. So I'm looking at your Lost Prospect interview guide. So everybody who's listening, when you grab this book, go to page 157, I think, and you'll find the interview guide. But this is really a remarkable book. So insights. I guess this is really where I want you to kind of let loose and the the questioning that you've been doing, the work that you've been doing, you have clearly gathered a lot of insight on business. What's mm-hmm. your favorite insights? What what are some of the favorite things that you've learned that you you use and you know teach constantly? I, I think the 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 big insight for me was to realize that most businesses fundamentally don't understand why they are growing or why they are not growing as fast as they want. There is a there is a plan. So the CEO says, okay, we're going to do X million dollars next year. We're going to grow X percent. And they don't really understand what mechanisms they have to put in place to achieve that growth. They don't really understand the growth engine. They don't dismantle the growth engine and understand fundamentally how it works. And a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm just going to, I said, how are you going to, how you, how do you plan to grow next year? Well, I'm just going to do the same as I'm doing, but I'm going to have more salespeople. So I'm going to increase my sales team. And I'm saying, okay, if you increase your sales team by one person, how much additional revenue do you generate? Well, it depends. You know, I have good salespeople. I have bad salespeople that I don't really, that don't do their quotas. Well, why don't you try, why, what makes a salesperson good or bad? Is this training? Is this skill set? Is this mishiring? And suddenly you start to double click on those things and, and you realize they never really ask themselves those questions. So I think the big insight to me is that, is that there is a fundamental lack of understanding how to grow a business. And, and part of it is because, again, the traditional methods of growing businesses just don't work, as we talked about earlier. Those, te- those, te- those techniques really really works, in my experience. And they are not thinking scientifically and rationally about alignment. And then the, the other insight is a lot of CEOs come to us and say, I want to accelerate my growth. I want to grow faster. Um, and can you tell me, you know, what's wrong with us? And I always say our job is fundamentally like a doctor. We, we have tools, which you know, I, I expose some of them in the book, where we measure your alignment. So we have, like a doctor may have an x-ray machine, they may have a blood work machine, they may have an MRI machine, and we are going to diagnose the misalignments based on our methodology and, and our machines, our tools. And I cannot tell you what you have. But like a doctor, when somebody walks into a doctor's office, they could have 
you know, a broken arm, they could have lung cancer, they could have COVID. And the CEOs always very quickly want to know what's wrong with them and how they can grow faster. And I always say, I really don't know what you have. I have to use the tools, I have to measure. And there is no universal answer of why you're not growing faster than, than, than you'd like to. And the same way, there is no universal answer of what's wrong with you for a patient. It could be a very vast variety of, of reasons. And it's the same with growth. There is not one single reason or two single reasons. There are hundreds of reasons why companies don't grow as fast as they can. And our job is to diagnose those reasons with the tools and the methodology and the discipline that we have and then be able to give them a growth playbook, which is the equivalent of the prescription for the doctor. We tell them what to do. We say, you need to take those pills. And then it's up to them to actually go to the pharmacy, buy the pills, and, and take them. That's completely up to them. We don't force them to take the pills. And so, again, to answer your question, the insight is that there is no universal reason why companies are not growing as fast as they can there is a myriad, a myriad of reasons, and there is you know, hundreds of reasons, and it's very specific to the business, the market segmentation, to the pricing, to what they sell, to the geographic footprint, to the, to the product suite that they sell, to the packaging. There's many, many reasons. And our job is to figure out what is the, re the specific reason for them and then tell them how to rectify those misalignments so they can start growing faster. I love this. I am back in your book. I love this book. Chewy. I love Chewy. I spend a lot of money. I have pets. I have feline office assistants and I have a dog. I swear to you, they eat better than I do. I swear <laughs> they do. But one of the things that I love about Chewy is that, you know, we all lose pets. They're not meant to live as long as we, we do. And it happens for whatever reason. Maybe they were sick. Maybe they, you know, were killed by a car. We don't know what's going to happen to them. But any time I've had to cancel something, I, I get a card. Sometimes they send flowers. Mm -hmm. And I just instantly weep all over the place like, oh, my gosh, they do care. That's the customer experience that I was talking about. Yeah, and, and I think what they are doing remarkably well, I, I give this example of this little card that they sent to my wife, Patricia, about our dog. And um, they you feel a very strong alignment because you feel that it's authentic, that it's real, that they understand how much love you have for your pets. Um, and, 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 like, and, and conversely, they just get it, you know, they just understand fundamentally. And, and I think that their the, the claim and their pain is beautifully aligned, their messaging is beautifully aligned, the way they sell, they get the package, you get the package quickly. And, and the way they truly care about you and they want you to be happy because they know how important your, your pets are, your dog are, um, that's remarkable. There's a fundamentally good alignment. And it's not surprising to me that they've been so successful in their growth and, and their market cap and, and their, their, their company, their business has been so successful just because of that authentic alignment with their customers. Right, I'm reading the book that the uh, letter they sent to your wife, dear Patricia. When my first pet died, you know, after I had been using Chewy's for a while, I was shocked to get a card. Yeah. I yeah. really was. And then they also told me that, you know, food that had already been delivered to donate it, which I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they are in total alignment with me and with many, many pet owners. Yeah, and that's why they are so successful. Exactly. Philippe, I wanted to ask you, and I didn't get a chance earlier, we're talking a lot about the book, but you've also got a television series. Tell us a bit about that before I let you go. Yeah, so I I, uh, I, I am co-producing a television series called um, The Alignment Zone, and I'm doing that with Rick Tokini, who is a fantastic, uh, fantastic person. Um, the idea of the, of the television show is to invite a CEO of a company um, and discuss about the four and the four plus one, the four external axis of alignment, the internal alignment with them, and to try to give advice, you know, based on the discussion, uh, try to give advice on what they should do to realign, you know, to better align their business with their, with their target market. And then the idea is to invite them back maybe six or nine months later and say, you know, we talked about this. Uh, thinking about doing X, Y, and Z. Did you do it? Did it work? And and kind of get the feedback loop and and understanding what worked and what didn't work. Uh, we're doing. We're planning to do ten shows a year. We did three. Um, the show is is distributed by C-Suite Television Network, which is a fantastic company out of New York, uh, for for business leaders and entrepreneurs uh, and C-Suite leaders. Um, and it, it's really a lot of fun because. Um, the CEOs that are invited to the show have to be authentic. We do the show for an educational purpose. It's to help other CEOs and other entrepreneurs and other business leaders. Uh, so they have to share the story and saying, yeah, we're not going as fast because of this, or we tried that and it didn't work. And it's by sharing those stories from their heart that we can really help people because they can relate. So that's why we did the show. And it's the same purpose of the book, which is really education. I want people to think about this challenge of growth in a different light. And that's why I wrote the book, and that's why we're doing the TV series. Congratulations. And I have to ask, I'm curious, how many CEOs said, oh, heck no, I'm not going to put my, myself out there like that. No, no, no. Or did they <laughs> say, absolutely, yes, I need help? Yeah, I mean, they are, they are, uh, they are CEOs that are growing fast, they have a plan, they execute on, on their firing on, four, on all their cylinders, and, and that's fine, and they, they don't need us, and they don't, you know, if they are successful, it's like if you're very healthy and you're doing well, you don't see the doctor, that's perfectly fine. Um, but most CEOs we talk to really want to grow faster. We have some very successful companies that are growing at 100%, and they, they want to maintain that growth rate, they don't want to lose it. Um, but if you want to be on the on the TV uh, show, and, and again, I would invite anybody to connect with me if they are interested, they just have to be authentic and they have to be willing to share their stories so that other people can learn from it um, and, and, you know, be, be in a just a natural conversation where we can learn something out of it. Where can people find you if they want to be on the show? And where can they find you in general, your website, your book? Yeah, so they can they can go on. Um, first of all, the book is on Amazon. It's called Aligning the Dots. Um, they can go to aligningthedots.com. Uh, the best way to connect with me is to connect on LinkedIn, and, and my LinkedIn is Philip, and the last name is Buisu, B as in boy, O U I S S O U. And they can just connect on LinkedIn, and, and uh, I will connect with them. Uh, my email address is also on our website, which is bluedotspartners.com. Uh, which is the management consulting firm that I'm that I'm managing, 
Um, and, um, and yeah, and they can just connect and I'd be happy to talk to them and engage in the conversation if that makes sense. Oh, thank you, Philippe. It has been fantastic speaking with you. I'm, everything in this book I'm reading, and I'm not a CEO of anything except my feline office assistants. Ask them, they'll tell you. But, you know, I do have a small business, and I do run it, and I do want to grow. So everything in this book is fascinating to me. You don't have to be a giant company to learn from this. So thank you. I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice and the, the case studies that you shared with our audience. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business podcast. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So take us along on your journey, and we hope to see you soon. Philippe, again, thank you. Yeah, Denise, I want to thank you so much for, for having me as a guest. It's a real pleasure talking to you, and I think you have a fantastic podcast, and um, I want to wish you the best, and thank you so much again. Well, thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.